0: Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Would you take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 John? We're going to spend most of our time in 1 John chapter 2, 12 to 17, but we're going to start at the beginning of the book, do a little bit of a review. Uh, a couple days ago, I was exercising at the home of one of our kids, and His whole family was working out together and I joined them and the oldest granddaughter decided to increase the workout and she looked up at me and asked, Papa, may I run with you? I didn't tell her that I had, before that question, absolutely no intention of running. Uh, But how do you say no to that? And so I I said yes, and she checked and got permission from her mother. She bolted out the driveway, down to the sidewalk. She began to run west at a high rate of speed. (laughs) Her mother followed along behind her on the sidewalk, coaching her verbally all the way, encouraging her. I was running in the street adjacent to them, trying to keep up with them. We got almost down to the end of the street. There was a guy working in his driveway. He looks out at the five-year-old and he yells and shouts words of encouragement and affirmation for her. And he looks over at me and he goes, come on, Grandpa. <laughs> I mean, you know, how did he know? You know, so we, we turned and, and ran back <laughs> toward the house and and thankfully her pace slowed a little bit and then we walk back in where the family was, and she announces to her dad, I just ran with Papa, which was very kind of her because she could have said, I just outran Papa. You know? There is something uh, reassuring and encouraging and wonderful about a little child who is comfortable with their parents, their parents are approachable, the relationship is right and good and safe, and so they have every reason to trust their environment. Some of you experience that kind of safety and security and significance from the people in your home that God entrusted you to them for a brief time and in, a, in a shaping, vital, life giving relationship. Childhood can be a wonderful time of life. It can be a time of joy and wide-eyed wonder, a time when they don't know what is to come. They don't know what's around the next corner. They just look to those with whom they are. That childhood can be joyous, it can be wonderful, and when they have reason to trust and delight at early life experiences and little children were created and it's intended by God for them to feel safe, for them to trust, for them to experience those life-giving reminders of their parents' goodness. And that's just a snippet, that's just a glimpse, that's just a little bit of the life that is available to us through Jesus Christ in which now we are connected and we are right with our Heavenly Father. Through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, we become His daughter and His Son. He's our Father. We have every reason in Christ to approach the life that God gives us with wide eyed delight. That's in the first words of this powerful, high impact letter. Check out John 1, 1 John 1, 1 4. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus Christ. He is word. He is life. And as through him, through his word, he discloses the Father to us, so now through his death, his resurrection to life, we have life. We share his life. He is word of life. Verse 2, the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested or made known to us. What kind of life? A life without end. Now, this moment, tomorrow, next year, and then forever. It is a life in Christ Without end, verse 3, we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with who? The Father. And with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that through Jesus Christ, you and I have a relationship with our heavenly Father. And where's the wide-eyed delight? It's in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You and I have occasion for joy and gratitude at who our Father is and what our Father has done for us. And that's what we want to look at this morning. In 1 John 2, 12-17, John introduces us, us to who we are, to our identity, to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And he tells us what that looks like. And the first words of this reminder of our identity and who we are are words of affirmation. They're warm. They're encouraging. They're like a coach who encourages us and affirms us at what God has done in us. But then we see words of warning. The same people that are affirmed, now he warns. That's us. If we have Christ and he works in us, then it's as if God is affirming us. And if we are in Christ, then God warns us. And both times when God works in us and he warns us, he does so for our true and ultimate good. In verse 12, he introduces us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who we are. And one of the most important questions that each of us can ask and answer is this question. Who am I? Because that will shape, the answer will shape, what you're going to do next with your life. It'll shape the decisions that we make. It will influence and dominate Tomorrow and the days to follow. Who am I? Verse 12, chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have forgiven, been forgiven you for his name's sake. Who are we? It's on the screen. It's in verse 12. We are children of our loving Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. I was in graduate school at the University of Oregon a long time ago, and on the first day of class, the teacher had an icebreaker, and he, separa- or she separated us into small groups with a, a facilitator. Now, the facilitator wanted to get to know us. So he asked us, Who are you? And then to help us along, He gave an illustration. He wanted us to identify ourselves. And she asked, if we were an animal, what animal would we be? Would we be a dog or would we be a cat or an eagle or a panda or a wolf? i had never thought about that question. I I couldn't identify as an animal. I didn't have the imagination uh, to identify as a dog or a cat, but I kind of got what the teacher was scratching away at, and that is that there is an internal part of us, there is a core understanding, there is a core identity internal to us that shapes or is shaped by the one we love the most, and then it shapes what we do, so the first question is an important question. Who are we? God tells those who truly believe in Jesus from the heart who we are. We are his, in verse 12, little children. And this refers to every person who loves and follows and confesses the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Every believer, man, woman, adult, child who confesses Jesus truly is a little child of the Father. And that is the best news ever. When I was little... My dad was big. When I grew up, I discovered my dad was not as big as I once thought. My dad, I loved him. He loved me. He was just a man. I'm grateful for him as my father. But I'm even more grateful that he was a little child of our heavenly father. So that my dad and I eventually have the same father. I once turned around in a church service and found my young daughter toddling after me. And years later I would write her a letter and I would tell her of that moment. And I would say that I hope she will always follow our ultimate father who is our good and gracious Father, and today we share the same Heavenly Father. We belong to Him. We have every reason to trust Him with the most joyous and happy and memorable, things that we like to remember in our life experiences, and we have every reason to trust Him in the opposite, those things that we would never chose to go through, those diagnoses that we try desperately to avoid those experiences and broken relationships and hurt and and times when we hurt others and we are hurt by others and it and we don't like it there is one we can trust and he is our ultimate father he will not abandon us he's not passive he's not indifferent he is not unable he is not weak He is without flaw, without sin. He can be trusted inside out with all who we are, everything that we experience. We have every reason to be grateful to Him. And if we're grateful to Him, it will change our life right now. We are His little children. And as His little children, our Father gives us a blessing that only can come from our Father. (laughs) And that is also in verse 12, and that is the undeserved gift of forgiveness, so that he forgives us of our sin in and through Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ died for our sin. He paid the price for our sin, so that we can, through faith in him, be forgiven of sin. So when you and I sin, God is holy and just, and it is and it incites or it it. ...violates God's person and character. He is without sin. And so when we sin, now that sin is between us. But in Christ, He removes that sin. He wipes it away. He forgives that sin... ...so that we have a right and full, forgiven... ...total access to our Heavenly Father... ...who likes to hear from us... ...and wants us to hear from Him. We are forgiven of sin. David, ancient king of Israel... ...author of songs... Wrote of forgiveness multiple times. David did some doorknob door dumb things in his life. Things that we read and go, this is in the Bible? Well, of course it is. This is in humanity. And so what did he write? Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 51, 7. Prayer to God, wash me and I should be whiter than snow. 51.9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. God watches, God sees, God knows. Hide your face, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me. Then verse 12 says, we are forgiven. Why? Not because we batted a thousand. Not because we are without flaw, mistake, regret. He forgives us because of the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is identical to the person of Jesus. We're forgiven, not because of us, but because of him. We are forgiven because of who he is and what he did for us on the cross on our behalf. That's why we're forgiven. And as hard as we may struggle to actually grasp, experience the forgiveness of God, you're still forgiven, even when you don't feel like you are. And you're forgiven because of the name of Jesus Christ. That's the blessing that our Heavenly Father gives to His children. Our sins have been forgiven, and they remain forgiven. It's not like tomorrow, that sin that I've already confessed, that somehow it's unforgiven. We may feel unforgiven, but we're not. Our sins remain forgiven. So, we have experienced this blessing of forgiveness, and our Father works in us for good, and our Father... He warns us for good. In our relationship with Him as His children, He affirms, He encourages. You know how hard it is to spot what's right in another person? And how easy it is to spot what's wrong or we think is wrong? To spot what we think is wrong is like low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's everywhere. But to spot what's right, we spot, we identify The way that the father is working in his child. And here we have no less than the word of God Himself who is identifying, who is spotting, who is calling out these words of encouragement, these coaching words of what's right. And He's going to tell us what's right, and then He's going to tell us, watch out. Do a gut check. Be honest with yourself. You're on the edge of a cliff, you're going to go over the edge. And driving both words of encouragement and the words of warning is who do we love the most? Because whoever we love the most will drive the decisions we make today. And disclose ultimately our true identity. So who am I? I am a little child of God. And what does it look like? What does our Father do for us? He is our Father. What does He do? Well, in 13 and 14, our Father works in us for our good. So in verses 13 and 14, which actually verse 14 says almost the same thing as verse 13... Exactly the same words with a couple of exceptions, and we're going to walk through both verses. What does our Father do? He works in us for our good. And so we read 13 and 14. See, you'll note the repetition. I am writing to you. Now, he says that multiple times as he introduces us to different generations, different categories, different groupings of people. Why does he do that? Well, if for no other reason than it illustrates that he has a personal relationship and care for the well-being of those to whom he's writing, and that's people in the church, and that would be, by extension, us today. So I am writing. This is priority. It's like John is late in years. He's long in the tooth. He is not long for this world, and he writes these words. It's like somebody on their deathbed. I'm writing. I'm saying this. You want to hear me? Listen to me. So he says, I am writing to you. Fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Repeat. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men. New verbiage. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, who are these people? Who are these groupings? Who are the fathers? Who are the fathers? Fathers, young men, children, repeat, who are they? It'll help us to look at another passage where the same words are used, but in a different way. And turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who is a young man. In in fact, Timothy is encouraged by Paul not to allow others to look down on him because of his youth. And so Timothy is a pastor. He's a pastor of a church. And in that church, there are generations of people. And those generations of people need to be shepherded. And so now you have a young guy who is to shepherd older people and younger people and fathers and young man is representative of all believers. They all share flesh and blood. They all share some of the temptations that we're about to see. We all live in the same world. We all have the same Heavenly Father. And we see that blended in 1 Timothy chapter 5. How is Timothy to shepherd people who are his age and people who are older? Well, the people who are older are described as fathers and as mothers. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women, verse 2, as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That helps us understand the intent of fathers. That's repeated again in verse 14. Fathers are older people. They're advanced in age. They are male and female Fathers are representative of both. The fathers, he affirms, have known Him from the beginning. What have they known? Who have they known from the beginning? Simply. They know God. Either from the beginning of their walk with Him or the beginning of the incarnation of Jesus. They know the story of who He is and they know Christ and they're following Him. Clearly, they know the word of life. From the beginning. Shortly or simply put, they know Jesus. They're related to him. Wouldn't you love at the end of your life to have somebody who had a front row seat really knew you? Not just somebody who thinks they know you, but they know this part of you. And they can say with with some confidence they know Jesus. So that's the fathers. The fathers are people who know Jesus. they got a long history with Jesus. It's like they've been climbing a high mountain for a long time, and they look down the mountain, and they see the trail winding below. They walked every step of that trail. Times they went off the trail and in the ditch, and but every time they eventually turn back to Christ, and they follow Him, and they move onward and upward, whether they're in the night, crying out to Him and experiencing His comfort and His presence. At the end of the day, it's said of them, they know Jesus, and that is enough for them. Young men. It's repeated. These are believers younger in age, but not necessarily immature or more immature than those who are older. You got Timothy as an example. Clearly, Timothy... Experienced or fulfilled the requirements of leadership in 1 Timothy 3, which when most of us read those, we go, oh, wow, that's, that's a pretty high bar. Well, Timothy was qualified enough to serve and to shepherd people who were a lot older than he is. And so here we have young men. These are believers that are younger in age. They're at a time of life when they're at the peak of their health. They're full of energy and dreams and ideation and hope, and they're strong. I was a young man. I completed, competed in a powerlifting in competitions. And we would have weight classes. And then we would go in and we would, in competition, do three lifts. And they measured all three lifts. It was concrete. You either did or you didn't. You knew exactly where you were. You knew where you finished. There was, you, you perform. You did. The measurables were objective. The data was hard. Well, how is their strength measured? Check it out. How is their strength measured in chapter 2, verse 13? I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then we drop down to verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you're strong. Young men, young women, you're strong. How? And the Word of God abides in you. And what did they do? What's the measurable? You have overcome the evil one. Who is the evil one? Well, the evil one is the one who tempted Jesus in the desert, he is the ruler of this world, he is the prince of darkness. He is the devil. Another name for Satan. He's not make believe. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. He's real. He is the tempter. The accuser of the little children who love and follow Jesus Christ. He's got an agenda. He wants to destroy God's creation. He wants to destroy the image of God in all of humanity. He lies. He deceives. He's got battalions of demonic spirits who create chaos. They execute evil in the darkness. He's also got human representatives. They're introduced to us in the next chapter, two chapters later, chapter 4. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You see the little children again? Who are we from? Who are we? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in us? We have God within us. His Spirit is within us. We have Christ. Greater is the Spirit of God. Greater is Christ than he who is in the world. Satan is no match for Jesus Christ. It's not like you got a black dog and a white dog and they're going at it in a ring somewhere. That's not it. Jesus Christ reigns on high. Jesus Christ wins. Jesus Christ, God the Father, God does all that He intends to do. Jesus Christ won the day already at the cross, the resurrection. Jesus Christ wins. But right now, there is one who wreaks chaos and havoc in the world. And He targets believers. And the way He targeted these believers in this church here in 1 John is... He placed people with his agenda amongst the body. They eventually left. They're described in the opening part of chapter 4. We're going to read it in a second. They left. They still had influence. They still had voice. Who are they? Verse 1, chapter 4. Beloved, I love you. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen to people. Do they confess Christ? Do they reject Christ? Whose voice is loudest in our world, in our life? Those who were younger in years, male, female, whose voice is loudest, right here, right now. What is the subject? What is their confession? What do they say? Test the spirits. It's not just the person, but the spirits that shape and influence them. And verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Everyone who confesses that this Jesus, God the Son, was sent by God the Father out of love for the world to die for the world, died for our sins, raised to life. He was real. He's not make-believe, not somebody's imagination. He walked this earth. He became just like us. He was human. Everyone who confesses this Jesus. Listen to them. You know their loves. You know their agenda. You know that if they are filled with the Spirit and right with God, they have your best interest at heart. Verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming now is already in the world. So you have people who are active participants in the agenda of the ones who reject Jesus Christ. And that's how we overcome. Verse 4, you have overcome them. Who? Those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And then you have, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So how do the young overcome the evil one? Every day. Every day it's like asteroids by the million hurtling at us. We make decisions. And the ultimate decision is who we're going to love the most and whose voice matters the most. So what matters the most is that we confess Christ and that we listen to the voice of those who know and love Jesus Christ and we watch out for those who don't. So that we overcome the evil one By loving the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ, and saying yes to Him. We're at a war. In Ephesians 6, we have spiritual weapons for our spiritual warfare. But when we confess Christ and say yes to Him, He's the source of our strength. And that's what it means. You are strong. The Word of God abides in you. His Word rules. His voice rules. His voice reigns and reminds us of who we are so that we would enjoy and embrace and dive into the Word of God, that we would bathe in it, that we would drink of what God has to say in His Bible that He has declared and revealed to us. The source of our strength, the Word of God, abides in you. And then He says, I have written to you children, and that's the big category. So, fathers and young people are, who have confessed Christ, are together children of God. That's the big grouping, the big category. That's everyone who is a believer and a follower of the Jesus Christ of the Bible. There's no one like your follower. No one, or like the one you follow, the father that we have. He never fails. He always does what is best. He always does what is true. He always is fair. He is just and generous and right in every way inside out. And if he is your father, then you are a forgiven forever child of your heavenly father. These are wonderfully enriching and encouraging words. And we look at them and we say, wow, that's love. We have white eyed wonder. That's encouraging. But now we come to the warning. And the warning is this, in verses 15 to 17. Our Father warns us for our good. So we go from these warm and encouraging words about who we are to a warning about who and what we love the most. There's an edge to these words. Like a parent warning a child about stepping back from something hazardous, like a hot stove or a busy street. I remember one time we were on vacation and our one of our young sons dashed across the street. We had just parked, got out of the car. He ran across the street. I didn't see it. I heard Nancy's voice yelling to him, and her voice was loud, and it was authoritative. Well, that's that's what we have here. We have our father pulling us back from the edge of the cliff. We have the father edging or pulling us back from hurting ourselves, and that's really what is for us personally, when we sin, we violate the Father. We violate us. And we, we can become trapped by it so easily. So now we have to ask, who or what do we love the most? And here's the first warning, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Time out. What's 1 John 3:16 say? For God so loves the world. Well, if God loves the world, why can't we love the world? Well, God loves the world to redeem those who are trapped in darkness, those who are not yet in a, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus demonstrates God's love for the world. But now he says, Do not love the world, and he says that to us, to believers. Because to us, loving the world means the world is our playground. And the things that are in the world are attractional. And the things that are in the world have a strong appeal to us. The world is the darkness over which the evil one reigns. It's that realm. And so he says, don't love that realm. You won't like the results. The devil's realm is the darkness. It's characterized by enmity with God and defiance of who God is. 15, 16, 17, six times we see the word world. Do not love the world, love for the world, love for what the world offers. Remember the extremes from last week that we talked about? Light and dark, love and hate. We do not keep his word or we keep his word. It's either or. Now we have another either or. We either love the world or we love God. Whoever we love the most will run our life. If our ultimate love is for the world and the realm of Satan, then we are not loving God. That's said to those who confess their faith in Jesus Christ. We can't love God and love the world in the same moment. But loving the world is normalized in the realm of darkness over which Satan rules. So that if we take our cue from Many or most of the voices that are in the world, uh, we would be listening to those who are not of Christ. The world promises fulfillment and delivers damage. Don't love the world. It will ruin your life. The world appeals to something within us so that the world has attractions. You might say the world has attachments and there is a way that the world appeals so we have the world that is outside of us and it appeals to something inside of us. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three groupings again. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life in all three begin and were introduced to them in the garden when Satan is speaking to God's creation in humanity. We have lust of the flesh, we have lust of the eyes, and we have the boastful pride of life. God created our appetites and he created appetites as good within his design intent for life so that in a practical way he gave us taste buds. So that we can savor. He gave us sensory nerves. That signal the brain. That send messages to the brain. And can release happy party chemicals. That include pleasure. Lust releases God given appetites. To feast on desires that are not of God. Success and money and sex and strength that can hijack desire. They are lust of the flesh. Broken humanity, our personal battle is with sin. And then we have lust of the eyes. That's photoshopped. It's what we see. It's it's eye candy. It's not real. It's not satisfying. It's not lasting. We see it. we got to have it. We reach for it. The satisfaction is short lived, and it, so repeat. Reach again. That's lust of the eyes. Boastful pride of life is boastful arrogance. I'm above you. I am the sun. You are the earth that revolves around me. Achievement is measured by externals and toys and initials before or after our name and digits in our bank account. We treasure and value what God gives us as his gifts more than we treasure in love and value the giver of those gifts that within him and for him are good. The warning is to fold our desires into Him. Why? Verse 17, The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So we have this moment right now, and we have forever. This moment, it doesn't last for long. It's for a moment. It doesn't last forever. Bible says we're born naked, naked we die. Bible says dust to dash, dust. Walk through a cemetery and there's a dash between date of birth, date of death. Little tiny thing. What do we desire right now above all else? James Houston wrote a book called The Heart's Desire. Not a popular book, but I found it helpful. He wrote an extended quote. It'll be on the screen. It has been said that we live not so much through our achievements as through our desires. And then he looks back on his life and he talks about desire And the memories that we have, quote, when our desires meet our memories, we replay lost opportunities, old hurts and experiences we thought would satisfy our deepest longings and that afterward left us feeling like we missed out the very thing we wanted. When memory meets desire, it can flame our desire and turn our hearts into a bonfire of longing so that we run after our heart's desire, hoping next time the experience will do what it did not do the last time. So who or what is our heart's ultimate desire? And who or what do we love the most? And that's what John is asking. It's the most important question to who I am. And when our children began to mature and we would hand them the car keys on the way out the door, we would say to them, Remember. Remember who you are. Not just as our child, but as a child of our Heavenly Father. And so today as we sing and then talk with each other and then walk out the door and across the parking lot to our cars. Remember. Remember who you are. Will you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of calling you Father, of experiencing life as your little children in and through faith in your Son. Thank you for giving your Son so that we can become your daughters and sons. Thank you for the blessing of forgiveness in Christ, for wiping away our sin, for nothing between us that we are related to you, connected to you. We have life with you now, and that life will one day be complete and visible and real, and we'll be with you, right with you now, with you forever. Thank you, in the name of Jesus, amen.